So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 32 this morning. This is the last week of our six-week series through the Psalms. I've been really thankful on a personal note for the way the Lord has used this series in my own life, and my own heart, really encouraging me in ways I didn't even expect, so thankful for that. Uh, next week, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. If you were with us before the summer, you know that we spent uh, the, uh, really 17 weeks in the book of Acts, taking one chapter at a time, and we're going we're to resume that uh, next week in a series I'm calling Unfinished Business. We're going we're to uh, work our way through the last, really, 11 chapters of Acts, Acts 18 through 28. Uh, but today, we're in one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. It's really the afterglow of a story of guilt and shame that give way by the power of God to laughter and joy. So uh, let me set it up for you. It was a crisp evening in ancient Israel, uh, 1,000 years before Christ was born. It was the kind of evening where you say to yourself, this may have been the most beautiful day of the year. Uh, nothing like the days we've been experiencing here in North Alabama over the last couple of weeks. No one certainly said that at the end of one of these hot and humid days. But this was a glorious day. And on this evening, King David, who was at the height of his popularity and power, was restless. This was the time of year when kings went off to war with their troops. But not so with King David. He stayed at home in the safety of the high walls of Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't as though David wasn't needed. He absolutely was needed. There was an imminent threat of an Ammonite takeover, which was very real. But David stayed at home on the couch, getting up only occasionally to pace around, perhaps in an effort to stave off the guilt and shame that he felt for not being there with his men. After a considerable amount of time trying to think of something else, anything else, David thought, well, maybe if I go outside, if I get some fresh air, that'll help. So he went up to the rooftop of his palace, surveyed his kingdom, and across the way, he noticed a young woman who was taking a bath in her house. And right away, he was captivated by her and determined to use his power to have her for himself. Now he knew right away that Bathsheba was married, and, and not just married, but married to one of his own soldiers, and he too was married, but that didn't stop him. There was zero hesitation. David acted promptly and decisively. In fact, 2 Samuel 11 tells us this very matter-of-factly, he sent for her, he took her, and he lay with her. So naturally, this put Bathsheba in an impossible situation. You just didn't refuse the king in those days, or it would, could very well mean your life would be surrendered. So I want you to know, uh, make no mistake, this was no cute love story. There was nothing romantic about this. This was not a romantic gesture on David's part, just a despicable abuse of power. My family and I were on vacation a few weeks ago. We were joined by my nephew and his new bride on the latter part of their honeymoon. So they'd only been married less than a week. And uh, because this was a big family get-together, multiple families coming together, they decided to spend uh, the last half of their our honeymoon with us. And so the first day that we, we saw them, and I hadn't seen my nephew Ben in a long time, and his brand-new bride, Monica, 
um, I asked them, hey, how did you guys meet? I don't think I've ever heard the story of, of how you guys met. And Ben said that uh, he'd had his eye on Monica for a long time and kind of been stalking her on Facebook. And, um, and then he noticed that she'd put a picture on Facebook of a new phone that she'd bought. Uh, it was an, I think it was iPhone, uh, iPhone 8 or whatever it was at that time. And, uh, and so he, she had this post about this new picture, this picture of this new phone she got, and he simply commented, does the new phone have a number? So um, that's how he got her number. That's how they started their relationship. And when I heard that, I said, I mean, come on, Ben. I mean, that, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> that, that is so corny. He just picked up his wife's hand and pointed to the ring. And that was it. I mean, that, he won that battle. He was right. Whatever it was, it worked. Um, well, there were no corny pickup lines used by David on Bathsheba. When David sent for Bathsheba, she had no choice but to comply. Well, this impetuous and adulterous fling by, that David uh, had engaged in, he really hoped to keep quiet. He hoped that it would not uh, bring a disrepute upon his reign in the kingdom. But what he'd hoped to keep private was about to become public in a hurry. Bathsheba announced that she was pregnant. Her husband, uh, Uriah, had been away at war, had not been home, so it was impossible that this child that she was going to bear was actually her husband's baby. So David hatches this scheme to bring Uriah home from war, to have him sleep with his wife so that he can say, so that Bathsheba can say, no, this is the child of my husband Uriah. But Uriah, who was a Hittite, and Hittites were known at that time to be opportunistic and wicked, Uriah the Hittite had so much honor that he refused to actually be intimate with his wife while his fellow soldiers were at war. So he wouldn't do it. So David is in this uh, terrible situation. His world is spinning out of control. He's not surely what, sure what to do to stop it. But then he comes up with this plan. He knows that at the front lines of battle, that's where the casualties stack up the fastest. That's where the fighting is the heaviest. And so he has Joab, his top commander, send Uriah to the front lines. And no surprise, Uriah is quickly killed. Maybe this will all work out, David thinks to himself. Maybe I have successfully hidden my sin. He allows Bathsheba some time to mourn the death of her husband, and then he brings her to his house, marries her, and she has a son. David breathes a sigh of relief, having, at least he believes, averted the, the biggest crisis of his kingship. Now, that's an unusually long intro uh, into this psalm, but I share with you this story because I want you to see just how much evil David had engaged in. If we were to list his sins, we'd have pride, adultery, lying, murder, and most biblical scholars, including most famously uh, John Piper, who's a pastor, was a pastor in, in uh, Minneapolis, most scholars have included in David's actions rape. The argument goes, forcing a person to choose between sex and death is rape. So just them, these are some incredible, incredibly heinous sins, incredibly wicked and evil deeds. If an everyday Joe committed these, he would likely be locked up for life. So how does a person get right with God in light of that particular list of sins? How does a person ever experience joy again? How does a person experience relief? How does a person experience peace with God 
when a person has committed those types of sins. Or really any sin for that matter when we think about the character of God. These may not be the sins that you've recently committed or even on your list at all, but you and I have sinned against God no less egregiously. And I say that because what makes our sins so offensive is not necessarily first what we do, but the one against whom we do it. God is holy. He is perfect. There is in Him no darkness, only light. We have sinned against God. So how do we find peace? How do we find joy? How do we find relief in light of our ongoing sins against a holy God? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning uh, from one of the so-called penitential psalms, or seven of those in the Scriptures. This is the second one. And by all accounts, the reason I told you the story, I reminded you of the account of David, is by all accounts, this psalm was written about a year or so after this scenario with Bathsheba that I just described. So let me read Psalm 32. Here reads the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the psalm begins with, Two description of the, the, quote, blessed one in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So that word blessed, and I don't know what translation you're reading. I'm reading the ESV here, the English Standard Version, which has the word blessed. But most Hebrew scholars agree that this is a word that really should be translated, better translated, happy. There's another Hebrew word that's typically used for blessed. But here it's the Hebrew word asher, which means, really means happy. It's not really that big of a deal, and I don't, I'm not arguing with the translators here, but I do think the point is that there's a real joy, there's a real delight, there's a true and lasting happiness, a sense of satisfaction and relief in knowing that we are right with God. And it's the kind of happiness, real happiness, that cannot be replicated or manufactured by anything else. That's what David is getting at. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the main idea, main theme, if you will, of this psalm, and then three sort of uh, affirmations or explanations. So here's, here's the main idea. There's no lasting happiness apart from or compared with the experience of God's forgiveness. 
Now, sure, there are other things in life that bring us happiness, and there are other things in life that bring you joy and that you get excited about and we're passionate about, and and those things are great, but there's no real lasting happiness apart from or compared with the experience of God's forgiveness. Happy is the one, David says, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Why is David so happy? Because each and every one of his sins have been forgiven, covered, not counted against him. In fact, he uses three different Hebrew words in those first two verses to describe the sins he's been forgiven of. He calls them transgressions in verse 1a, sin in 1b, and iniquity in verse uh, 2. The first word is a reference, that word translated transgressions is a reference to sins of outright rebellion. One uh, biblical scholar, Bruce Waltke, says, picture a person with his fist raised against God. This is the kind of sin that David's talking about. For David, we, we see this kind of rebellion in the Bathsheba story um, in a lot of ways, but maybe most pointedly in his uh, conspiracy to murder Uriah. David knew the value that God placed on human life, and he knew how egregious the sin was of of shedding innocent blood, and yet that's what he does in complete defiance against God. For us, how how do those sins of outright rebellion manifest? In a lot of ways, I think. One that came to my mind right away, I think, is, is our unwillingness to forgive others who have sought our forgiveness and repented, We know that reconciliation is at the very heart of God. Forgiveness is at the very heart of God. God commands that we forgive others of any offense against us when they repent, and yet sometimes we absolutely refuse. In an act of defiance, we will not forgive those who've wronged us. second word that David uses for his own sins is a reference to sins of stubbornness and even at times ignorance. For David, this involved using his power to advance his own agenda rather than to advance... God's plan. For us, I think these sins of stubbornness may, things, may be things like unthankfulness or resentment. Understanding, you know, intellectually that every good gift is a gift from God. It's from His hand to us. We're unthankful. We're ungrateful at times. The third word that David uses here to describe his own sins is a reference to sins of deception and crookedness. For this, I believe uh, this is a reference to the scheming and deceiving that David did. And, of course, any sort of infidelity, all these things, they always go hand in hand with conniving and scheming and deception. And and all this is evident in David's actions. For us, we see it in a variety of ways, perhaps our lying or shading the truth, saying things that aren't really true as a way to make us look better. Again, David uses three different Hebrew words to show the depth of his sin, Uh, but just as there are three words to describe the depth of sin, he also uses three words to describe the completeness of God's forgiveness. Those sins, verse 1, are forgiven, which literally means they are carried away, signifying the complete removal of guilt. They are 1B, they are covered, which is a reference to an act of atonement. They are dealt with in such a way that the sinner is made right with God. And then the Lord counts no iniquity, which means that God will never bring them up again. He doesn't hold them, it doesn't hold on to them. He doesn't even remember them in a manner of speaking. One of the most beautiful descriptions of this is Hebrews 8, where God says about his own people, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins 
no more. This is why there's happiness. This is why there's excitement. This is why there's relief and peace and satisfaction in God's forgiveness. In 1665 in London, there was an English Puritan by the name of Thomas Vincent. And he preached a one-hour sermon on this one verse, Psalm 32, 1. And the Puritans did this a lot. If you've ever read any Puritan stuff, you know that I mean, they preached these really long hour, hour and ten minute sermons on one verse, which really ended up to be pretty much just topical sermons. Uh, they take a verse and then they would, would launch into it. It's beautiful stuff. Um, but the, he preached, but Thomas Vincent in 1665 pre- preached this sermon uh, with the title, Wherein Doth Appear the Blessedness of Forgiveness and How May It Be Obtained? And in this, with very rich and beautiful language, Vincent said this about those who have been forgiven. He says, Pardoned persons have the beginnings of heaven here, in this life, in the work of grace, and sometimes foretastes and the first fruits of it. What does he mean by that? Well, think about this. When you think about heaven, what do you look forward to the most? Now, certainly, being with Jesus, that's, that's, that should be up there on everyone's list. And being with those people maybe who have gone ahead of us, those who are in Christ, who died, maybe you lost a grandparent or maybe a parent or a spouse, and so you look forward to being with that person. And that's great. Those are all totally noble desires. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think when we imagine ourselves, we look forward to heaven, I mean, don't you long for the end of guilt? Don't you long for the end of shame? Don't you long to be free from the burden to just fulfill everybody around you's expectations? Don't you long for an end to the feelings of disappointment, like you failed the people who matter most to you? Well, this is what Thomas Vincent would say. This is what those who have been forgiven get a foretaste of, even on this earth, with God's forgiveness. They already experience, now of course not completely, but they experience on some level this end of guilt and the end of the feelings of failure, the end of shame. But for those who have not been forgiven, they will not experience lasting happiness. In fact, they experience great pain and agony. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. David saying, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is a man in a bad way. This is a man in total agony. Have you ever been with someone when, because of some sort of sickness or illness that they're having a hard time getting air? And you, you, you're with them and you feel that they're just, they're just gasping for breath and they can't get enough oxygen. I mean, it's a horrible feeling. You feel horribly for them and you yourself, you don't realize it, but then you're taking these deep breaths in order to get breath for them. It's a terrible thing to observe. This is what David says is going on. He says, he, he said, I feel like somebody is pressing down on my chest with all the weight of heaven. I can't get my breath. My bones hurt. I'm aching in my joints. He's so weak and listless that he says, my bones are wasting away. And here's a fascinating nuance to this. He doesn't attribute his condition to his sin. What does he contribute his his situation to? His silence. For when I kept silent, verse 3, 
He doesn't trace the cause of his pain to his sin, but to his covering up, verse 5. Because David attempted to hide his sin and would not confess it to the Lord, he was in spiritual, emotional, relational, psychological, and physical agony. And this is what happens. It's what can happen when we fail to confess our sin to God. When we attempt to hide our sins from God, it may be headaches, it may be back pain, it may be joint pain, it may be higher blood pressure, it may be a shorter temper, it may be fatigue, it may be the racing of your heart, it may be insomnia, but here's the bottom line. Silence about sin makes us sick. Now here's that first affirmation as we're working our way through this psalm. Unconfessed sin and the guilty conscience it produces will eventually take its toll on our minds, spirits, and bodies. So David, is, he's experienced this. We don't know the exact time. It could have been as long as a year. He experienced this, and he is just utterly broken. He's under so much pain and agony. Every single part of me, he says, aches. But then after experiencing this, David confessed his sin to God. And notice the number of times he uses first-person pronouns. My sin, my transgressions, my iniquities. There's no blame shifting. There's no fake apologies like we so often see in the media. We read about, we hear, and we make. And we make a bunch of of these non-apologies. Let me just give you a few or four of them. There's the compassionate non-apology which goes like this, you know, I'm really sorry that you felt that way. That's not really an apology. There is the bullying non-apology. All right, fine, I'm sorry, there. Is that enough? That's actually not an apology. There's the I've been sent non-apology. My wife says that I should apologize to you, so here I am. Or my personal favorite, there, there's the, you're confused non-apology. I'm really so sorry that you misunderstood me. When I hear that, I want to say, now what exactly are you sorry about? That I'm so dumb that I can't understand what you're saying? Is that really what you're sorry about? I can tell you're really broken over this. Now the thing is, we, we all use these, and there, of course there are many more. But not David. He takes the full ownership of his sins. There is one, there's one statement that must accompany all true repentance, and it's this. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I was wrong. And as a result of this earnest confession, he revels in, in the relief of God's forgiveness. He confesses his sin to God, and then he uses phrases in verse 7 like, You preserve me from trouble. You are my hiding place. And I love this one. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Now, if all this is true, if unconfessed sin takes such a toll on us, it does beg the question, why then will we ever try to hide our sins from God? I think there are a few reasons that come to mind. One is shame. We think if we confess our sin to God that He will turn His back on us, that we, we will reveal to Him something He doesn't already know, which never happens. A second reason I think we try to cover our sins is we realize that if we acknowledge our sin to God, then we know that it may require us to think, to change the way we think and the way that we live. 
All true repentance involves a disgust over our sin and a sincere effort to live differently. We can't with any sincerity acknowledge our sins to God if we have no intention of living differently. A third reason we may try to hide our sins is we realize that by confessing our sin to God, we may also then have to confess our sin to, the one, to someone else, a person, someone we've offended, someone we've wronged. Even though all sin is first and primarily sin against God, we also sin against, hurt, wrong, offend one another. For example, when we lie to someone, we must first confess that sin to God, but also the one to whom we lied. And that strikes fear in our hearts. But in a community shaped by the gospel, confession, repentance, and forgiveness are regular rhythms. And I say this to every young couple that I do pre-marriage counseling for and every older couple that I say they, they want to know all the, you know all the little nuances of how do we live together and how do we share a bathroom together and how do we share a bed together and how do we... And I say, look, the, we can talk about some of those things, but let me tell you, if you get anything from these five weeks, remember this. If you want to enjoy your relationship, if you want to be characterized by intimacy and oneness the way that God designed marriage to be, Remember this, establish a rhythm of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. That, that's more important than the way you hang the, the toilet paper roll. And I know that means a lot to some people. But if you establish this rhythm, confession, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And this is what we do both vertically and horizontally. Now, we never know what the Holy Spirit will do among us when we gather as a church family. The Spirit of God may be at work in you this morning, making you aware that you need to confess a sin you've been hiding to the Lord. And maybe, after that, you need to go and confess a sin, a way that you have wronged someone else in your church, in your family, in your neighbor, you need to go to them and confess your sin and seek forgiveness. And maybe somebody who doesn't even know that you've wronged them. I was getting ready to take communion 20 years ago, sitting in the front row, and a, and a guy came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder. His name was Jim. Uh, this is from two decades ago. And he said, I can't take communion right now. I said, why? He goes, I have harbored bitterness in my heart against you for a decision you made six months ago. And I've been angry, and I've hated you in my heart. He said, I want to seek your forgiveness. And I hugged him, and I was so glad. I didn't know this about him. I noticed they always kind of looked away when I looked at it. I didn't know that he was harboring this, but he wanted to get that out. And I think we have to do this. Now, maybe your unwillingness to, maybe your attempt to hide your sin before God is the reason you're experiencing emotional or psychological pain or insomnia or any of those other things I mentioned. Now, we have to be very, very careful with this. We have to be careful that we don't moralize suffering, by which I mean concluding that something we're going through or something somebody else is going through physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever it is, is a result of some sin in their life. Jesus makes it clear that not all sickness is a result of personal sin. He corrects the religious leaders on this very thing. We get sick because we live on a sin-cursed planet, a planet cursed because of the sin of our first parents. Adam and Eve, so we don't want to rush there. However, we don't want to end up in a ditch that ignores the reality of God's discipline. 
The Lord disciplines those He loves. So maybe the Spirit of God is prompting you this morning to confess your sin. If He is, don't reject the Spirit's work in your life. David says in verse 9, don't be stubborn like a horse or a mule. Submit to the Spirit's leading. Now look at verses 5 and 6. This is the turning point. Verse 6 is of the whole psalm. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, so everything he's written up to this point, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So that word, therefore, is the turning point of this psalm. Because of the experience of God's forgiveness, David says, therefore, or in light of this incredible Credible forgiveness, let everyone seek God now. Therefore, verse 7, in light of the beauty of God's forgiveness, David says, I find in you a hiding place, a refuge from trouble. I will shout for joy because you have delivered me. You see what's going on here? David has actually received God's forgiveness. And this is crucial. He's resting in God's forgiveness. Now, I want you to notice something about this psalm. I, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here. I don't mean to, or maybe I do, but I think this is important. You notice David says nothing about needing to forgive himself for what he's done. He never once suggests that now he's been forgiven by God, he now has to begin the hard work of forgiving himself. You hear people say this all the time. You've got to learn to forgive yourself. This is one of the most popular catchphrases on talk shows and self-help books But here's the thing, there's not a single place in the Bible where we're instructed to do this, nor is there a single place in the Bible where we see anybody modeling this. It never happens. This is not a biblical concept. It finds no basis in Scripture. Now, of course, I understand why someone might say that. If a person was driving while drunk and killed someone, if a person has committed a terrible sin, harming someone else, maybe that resulted in the death of someone else, then I can understand why that person would say, would, would, would think for a second, this is something that I have to learn to forgive myself of. But the problem is forgiveness, biblically speaking, requires both an offender and a victim. And one person can't be both, the offender and the victim. On a theological level, the reason we don't forgive ourselves is because we can't. As sinful, finite human beings... We don't have the ability to pardon ourselves for our wrongdoing. We need a forgiveness that comes from outside of us, which is exactly what David is celebrating here. So a better way to look at this, a more biblical way of looking at this, rather than saying I have to learn to forgive myself, is to say this, I have to learn to receive, to rest in, to believe, to trust in God's forgiveness of me. Author and professor Michael Whitmer says, if you're struggling under the burden of unbearable guilt, ask yourself what you really need, your forgiveness or God's. Isn't it enough to know that God and the person you offended have forgiven you? Here's that second affirmation if you're taking notes. As important as confession and repentance are, so is receiving God's forgiveness. 
by receiving, I just mean all those things I just mentioned a moment ago, believing that God has forgiven you, trusting in God's forgiveness, resting in that forgiveness. When God forgives us, as we saw a moment ago from verses 1 and 2, our sins are carried away. They are forever removed from the sight and memory of God. God never thinks about sins that He's forgiven. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's pretty amazing. The Lord will never count against us the sins that we have acknowledged to Him and repented of. He won't bring them up. He's not going to shove them in our face. He's not even going to send subtle reminders so that we'll, 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 we'll think of what, the ways that we failed Him. Our sins are gone. We have been forgiven, and we have to believe that. Now, it takes the power of the Spirit of God to believe that. We have to learn to receive that and rest in that. You may have sinned against God recently in a way you thought you never would, in a way that you swore you would never do. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was three days ago. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was a long time ago in your life, and you can't stop holding on to that sin. That decision you made still haunts you. Well, let me assure you this morning, if you've confessed your sin to God, He's not even thinking about it. He has moved on. He has forgotten about it. And you need to receive His forgiveness. Now, there's one more important, very important part of this psalm, verses 10 and 11. It reads this way, Many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, we're almost done here, but this is so, so important and so beautiful. When we read that, we might be inclined to think, if I just keep my thoughts pure before the Lord, if I just obey His commands, if I can just live a righteous life, then I can celebrate and rest in His love. But that's not what this psalm is talking about at all. They say, well, how do you know that? It seems very clear this is what it's saying. Well, the Apostle Paul actually explains Psalm 32 in Romans 4. This is so incredible. Here's what Paul says in Romans 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then look at this. You'll remember these words because I just read it a moment ago. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you recognize those last two sentences? It's right from Psalm 32. Paul is quoting Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 to make the point that this righteousness that the psalmist talks about is not earned but given to those who have faith. The righteous one in Psalm 32 is not the one who lives a better life than all the people around him. He is the one who is trusting in the Lord for any sort of goodness. The one that, the one that God has forgiven and now guides in the right path, verse 8. So lest we think for a moment that we have to be a certain level of good, a certain level of righteous in order to receive God's forgiveness or do so much work, or give so much, or serve so much, or, or maintain a certain pattern, or whatever it is. 
Paul explains the only, the only requirement for rejoicing in the Lord forever and singing with happiness over God's forgiveness is a righteousness that is ours by believing and not by doing anything. Now you may ask, and I hope you are, what exactly am I supposed to believe in order to have this sort of righteousness? Well, this forgiveness that God offers is possible we might say, because of what Jesus, God's only Son, has done. When God forgives our sins, He doesn't ignore them. He's holy, so He can't. His character won't allow it. Though forgiveness is free to us, it comes at a great cost to God, a a cost that was paid on the cross. There, Jesus dealt with our sins by pouring out His own blood. He shed His blood on the cross, dying a violent and cruel death in order to pay the penalty for our rebellion. So we could be completely and totally and utterly and forever forgiven. When we say that God sends our sins away, they're not blasted into outer space. They were sent away by being placed on Jesus. So that by trusting in what Jesus did, we are made righteous, forever right with God. Here's our final point this morning. The righteous are made so by faith in Jesus' cross work, the sole basis for our forgiveness. Because Jesus died and poured out His blood in our place, God can and will forgive sinners without violating or contradicting His righteousness. God accepts the blood of Jesus as full and sufficient payment for our sins and our rebellion. Which means that whether this sin that you're holding on to was a week ago or a month ago or a year ago or ten years ago or a lifetime ago, it means it has has forever been sent away, nailed to the cross on Jesus. So now you can sing with joy You can live with freedom. You no longer have to be under the burden of guilt or shame. You can even laugh at yourself because your standing with God is not dependent upon your performance. When we understand this, when we receive this, when we rest in God's forgiveness, we can say together, as we're going to sing in just a moment, No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray this morning for that man or woman or teenager or child who is just riddled with guilt and shame and can't seem to move beyond something they did in the past something that haunts them, something that just is a burden that won't let up. I pray, Lord, that you would help them by your Spirit to experience, to to receive the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ. And I pray that you would cause it to be so by your Spirit that that offense, that sin, that action never haunts them again. And Father, I pray for the person here who is under the burden of sin and law because he or she has not trusted in Christ for forgiveness. 
will you perform a miraculous work by your Spirit so that for someone in this room, so that for someone today, now is the time of salvation. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.